Welcome to Now I See, a podcast where people of vision share eye-opening experiences that help them and can help all of us shift focus, gain perspective, and see ourselves, our world, and our place in it in a whole new way. What a fun guest I have for you today, Dale Sims. Hi, Dale. Welcome to our show. Good to be here. Thanks for asking me to be here with you. The Now I See podcast had barely launched before I started getting questions about when I'd be airing an episode featuring you. So here, by popular demand, like I hadn't already invited you, is my friend, and apparently everyone's friend, Dale Sims. Dale earned fave friend status from me a decade ago when we discovered we had something in common, a love for the country of Latvia. We had some mutual Latvian friends. I had been invited to speak at a conference in Riga, and Dale was writing a book about his sixth-month Latvian experience as a Fulbright scholar. His book about a large man who stumbled around in a small country is called Latvia Matters and was released in 2014. His latest book, A Coming-of-Age Story, called Dust of a Distant Mesa, was released in print and audio versions in 2020 and was on the Amazon bestseller list. In addition to being an author and a speaker, Dale served as the Dean of College of Business at Dallas Baptist University, where he was awarded the Piper Outstanding Professor of the Year and the DBU Business Faculty of the Year, and is in the Southwestern College Scholar Hall of Fame. Dale speaks four languages and confesses to knowing a smattering of four others. Are you counting any of the computer languages you learned as a system manager, analyst, application programmer when you were working in the tech Uh world? Oh, oh no, no. There's dozens of those. So that's, wait, there's more. <laughs> that's yeah, that's different. That's 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 different. But yes, there's there's a lot of of computer languages as well as spoken languages. So Dale is especially good at English, as you're about to find out as soon as I let him have a chance to talk. So Dale, I see you as well, clearly smart and accomplished. But add to that thoughtful, intentional, measured, wise a good listener, and a great storyteller. You have an uncanny ability to gather details about people, places, and things, the way treasure hunters find hidden jewels. Then you polish them, find the best settings for them, and then display them so others can enjoy them too. You yourself are a gem. How do you see yourself, and how would you like others to see you? Oh, well, I've always thought of myself not not as a true gem, but maybe a diamond in the rough more of a more of a, of a work in progress forever i don't what i like to say is that i've had a lot of common experiences in my life i just tell the stories in uncommon ways i think a lot of people can relate to the stories i think it's just the way that you tell the story the way that you present it that's what makes the difference in a in a good storytelling. Now you are a great storyteller. So um, what are some of the values that shaped you into the person that you are today? That is a great question. And, and so it's, it's more of a wide-ranging question. I would say values like hard work. I value the opportunity to work. I value all different kinds of work. Uh, I'll, I'll just share this brief story. When I was 17, I was a senior in high school. My father and my mother called me into our little 
dining area, kitchen dining area. We all sat around the table, and my dad said, Dale, you know that we have no money and we have no food. So as soon as you graduate from high school in just a couple of weeks, you're going to have to leave home. So I want you to leave home. I want you to get a job. And not only uh, get a job, but you have to stay out of trouble. And uh, we want you to send money home because you know we have, you have three uh, siblings. You have you know, your sister and your two brothers, and, and we need your help. So we're counting on that. And that set the stage for a lot of things into the future. But I valued being able to help my family. I valued the, the strength that God gave me to, to do physical, manual physical labor. So I worked on, on farms and ranches. I did uh, siding and roofing and insulation on houses. Uh, I worked in grocery stores. I worked in factories. I worked in foundries. Uh, I did I did a lot of heavy manual labor, and that heavy manual labor made me really appreciate education. I found that if you didn't have a good education, you were just going to make your living with your back. And in those days, we didn't have the internet. Everybody thinks, well, why didn't you just create an online job? And there was no online job back in those days. That didn't exist. Uh, we were uh, we were just trying to to create all of that back in the back in the 70s. Everybody forgets uh, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. If Steve were still alive, he'd, he'd be my age. Bill Gates is my age. So we were in the process of creating all that back in the 70s, but it just wasn't there. So I, I appreciate education. Uh, as, as a value, I think it I think it has a huge value. I think there's two kinds of education. There's an education that prepares you for making a living, and there's an, ed- an education that prepares you for living a life. So I think I value both kinds. I value people. I value uh, the, the rich variety of thoughts, and uh, I value uh, truthfulness, uh, pureness, goodness, Uh, all of the things that I see in the morning when I wake up, the sun rising, the the clouds scudding across the sky, birds singing, things that have been going on for millennia, and and yet we take it for granted. I, I like all of those kinds of things, the green grass, the blue sky. I think, uh, for me, my values are, are pretty bedrock and simple. I'm not you know, I'm not talking about about great big, uh, really amorphous or or strange ideas. I'm just talking about um, pure and simple values that I uh, that I kind of live by. Help each other. Help your family. Be the kind of person that other people trust. Help your neighborhood, your your community. I'm not sure I can affect national politics or anything like that, but I can certainly affect what happens in my neighborhood and in my community. I can do that, and I can affect what happens at my workplace. I can do that. So that's kind of what I stand on. That's kind of where I go. 
Now, I have to say that all of that is based upon my my understanding of Christianity, because I'm a Christian, and that that is the bedrock on which all the other things rest. I know that a lot of people will say, oh, well, you know, just another Christian. But I would rather people at least know where I stand and why I stand and also know that, um, that, they can, they, that I'm an approachable person, that they can come to me that we can speak about a lot of different things. As a professor, I've learned to deal with people from all different kinds of walks of life. And uh, I don't pick my students. My students pick me. They walk into the classroom, and that's what I want. I want them to pick me, and I want them to come in and, and uh, not just in the classroom, but come into my office and talk to me about uh, life and what they're learning in the classroom and why they're learning it. I, that's, that's what I want. And that's why I live the way I do. Thank you. That really helps give an understanding of where our conversation is going and certainly the motivation for your book, Dust of a Distant Mesa. So you, um, it seems very early on, developed powers of, of observing. You know, and you've seen it and I have too. Some people just float through life and they don't see things. They don't internalize things. They don't take them in and hold on to them and, and sit with them. But you do. Why? Who taught you to do that, or when did, when did that become important to you? My, my parents early on said that I observed a lot of things, and I would sit at the table and just talk about what I saw during the day. Uh, my dad hated it. My mother loved it. I think, you, I think that was the start, but my Indian friends, my Navajo and Pueblo friends, actually taught me to to actually stop. And when you're observing something, observe it in more detail. Why is that interesting? What is that that you're looking at? Why, why does it appear that way? Is that really the way it is, or is that just the way it appears to be? So it was a, it was a process of training. Also, I have a degree in biology, and biology is... I would say, an observation science. And yeah, yeah I, had to use, I had to use my observation skills in my biology studies. So I would say that's been something that I have honed over the years. Well, and add to that, not only an ability to observe things, but to relate them in a compelling way. Who is your inspiration for good storytelling? Oh, my. I had a great-grandmother who lived to be 100. Her name was Clemmie Minton. And Clemmie told all these wonderful family stories. And it was kind of shocking sometimes. The stories would be things that I wouldn't want to share outside of the family. But Clemmie knew how to share them in a way that, that made you remember them well. And you could actually see in your mind's eye what was happening because of the way she told the story. Uh, Clemmie was very, very thin, uh, slight, uh, not very tall. She had cotton white hair. 
she was very vigorous, even in her old age. Clemmy, when she was in her mid-70s, I guess, was given a diagnosis that she was going to die. She had a some sort of a heart problem or something. And I used to go by her house. She had a little bitty house in Wichita, Kansas, and I went by every now and then. And when I went, she would be laying in a back bedroom. And I said, Grandma, what are you doing? She said, oh, I'm just waiting to die. And then she'd get up and she would say, are you uh, hungry? I've made some food. And then she would proceed to, to feed me. And then she would proceed to sit down and talk about family or something that was of interest to her in the news. And she would, we would talk for three or four hours, and she would not even be tired. One day, I went by her house, and she was not in the house. I normally let myself in, and this time I let myself in to the house, went to the bedroom. She was not there. I was really concerned. I, I thought something had happened. Nobody told me. So I went around the house, and everything looked normal. I went out back, and she had a little garden that she had made, and she was working in her garden. And I said, I said Grandma... Uh, you're working in your garden. Uh, what, what's going on? And she said, you know, I just got tired of waiting to die and decided to do something. And this is how I decided to start. I'm going to plant this garden, and then I'm going to do some other things. Clemmy never learned how to drive. Cars were, uh, I think, were invented when she was born, but they were a real novelty. And uh, you know, I mean, it was they were rare, very rare when, when she was young. Uh, airplanes. You know, she was alive when airplanes uh, flew first. She was alive to see people walk on the moon in 69. She was alive to um, see microwave ovens, television, radio, uh, an amazing life of, of her. But she did not drive. She had a, a small wire basket on wheels that she took with her to the grocery store. And before she would go to the grocery store, she'd go up and down the street, and she had people that she called her elder neighbors. I don't know anybody who was more elder, elderly than her. And so she would go to her elder neighbors and say, do you need something from the grocery store? And then she'd walk, uh, it was probably about a mile or so, to the grocery store and back with her little cart and then distribute everything, and then go home and maybe watch a baseball game on TV. That, uh, I think that's my inspiration. Clemmy Minton was uh, very inspirational. There are other people. There are people who are extremely good at, at writing. Uh, William Faulkner, who could tell a story. Uh, I, I was always amazed. You could tell, you could read his stories, and you could actually see what was going on. Uh, the book To Kill a Mockingbird was absolutely a great story. And um, so I, as I've gone through life, I have learned that there are people who were extremely good at telling stories. O. Henry, uh, Guy de Maupassant, um, you know, there's just a, just a number of people like that who were extremely good at writing down a, a good story. And that's, that's what I wanted to do, was to be able to tell a good story and to write a good story, to tell it with speaking 
and to write it down so that people who read it in the written word could see it in their mind's eye. Before we dig into Dale's book, Dust of a Distant Mesa, won't you take a moment to visit our website, nis.media, and subscribe to our newsletter? Or maybe you'd like to contact us and leave a comment about our show. We'd love to hear from you. Feel free to share this episode or any of our previous episodes. I hope that you enjoyed hearing from Dave Arden last week, author and founder of Chosen to Speak. Come back next week to hear about Becky Pullum as she takes us on a wild ride of off-road humor as she recounts tales from her travels and the fun she's had along the way. Now let's listen to Dale as he sifts through the sands of time and unearths memories layered with the hard rock of reality and glistening veins of delight in his beautiful book, Dust of a Distant Mesa. Dust of a Distant Mesa, you mentioned several strong influences that helped form your view of yourself, including your father, your mother, a Sunday school teacher, and a Native American named Yaz. How did these people shape who you would become? In early 2020, uh, 2019, early 2019, my father got very ill. The doctors said, call your family in. Um, you'll probably die. So he called me and my brothers, and we all met at the hospital. Fortunately, he didn't die. He kind of rallied once we got there. He was laying in bed, and we were all talking with him. My brother Paul, my youngest brother, asked Dad, you know, Dad, we, I know we used to live in New Mexico. I don't remember anything about it. Did you find any gold while you were there? You were always looking for gold. Did you find any? And we want to know because if you die, you know, maybe that's a big thing. So my, so my dad was, was real quiet for a little bit, and he said, no, I didn't find any gold in New Mexico. But the real story is Dale's. You ask him. So I thought about it. I thought about it for a little bit. It, it's, it was something I had kept inside for a long, long time. I didn't share that story with hardly anybody. Matter of fact, Debbie didn't know this. My wife didn't know that story. People knew bits and pieces of the story, maybe. So uh, when my brothers left the room, I talked to Dad. I said, Dad, are you talking about the story I think you're talking about, the, this, this incident and, and these things? And he said, yes. I considered what he had told my brother, and I thought, well, if my brothers are interested in the story, then maybe other people will be as well. So perhaps I should write this down. It's kind of daunting if you, you know, I was only seven and eight years old when all of that was happening. And here I am in my mid-60s, and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to write this story that's about almost 50 years old. And so how am I going to actually dredge all of that up? 
and put it on paper in a way that tells a, a compelling story that, that people will understand and people will relate to. I, I worked very hard at making sure that what I wrote was the way that I remembered it. And that's, that's a difficult thing. Fifty years is a long time to carry memories. And I do say in the book that time and space kind of color our memories. So we gloss over some things, we sharpen up other things. And I tried really hard to make sure that the story that I was telling was worth reading. That was my whole point. And uh, some people would say that I have succeeded. Well, as the dust of your life settles over that book, the, the way that you describe some of those memories, in my mind, became so sharp and crisp and clear. It was like I was walking them with you. And I was so profoundly moved um, that even as a child, you were thinking such deep thoughts that you were thoughts that you carried with you into adulthood um, and really shaped the person that you would become. I don't remember thinking such deep thoughts at that same age. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's so remarkable to me. Um, it's also remarkable to me that you shared this story and you shared with me privately that your brothers and sisters don't really have a recollection of some of the events in there. So nobody could say to you, that's not the way it happened. Correct. Correct. <laughs> so you do have that little advantage, but your truth, your reality is this is what happened. And then uh, these were the things that you felt about the things that were happening to you. And these were the things that you took from it. Um, and so your book isn't teaching guide by any way saying this is the way I observe life therefore you should have these same feelings but this is the way that you processed what you were feeling and indirectly it teaches us to to be more open to the things that um, to incidents that happen to people that God places in our path to ideas that may be different than our own open to cultures open to criticisms and warnings and celebrations, um, whatever life would give us. And I think that you do that beautifully in your book. This idea of, of profound thoughts from, a, you know, from an early age, I, I don't know if they were really profound, but they are things that I have thought about over the years and have carried with me for years and years. What I wanted to show in the book, there's a lot of uh, dichotomies. So you, you look at uh, what some of the white people were doing, and you look at what some of the Indians were doing, and you ask yourself, who were the savages? Who were the savages? The other things, uh, you know, so what, what does it mean to be a Christian? Or uh, because, because obviously there was... Uh, something different about the way that the that the Navajo that I knew saw Christianity. Also, uh, I mentioned some people from the Catholic Church, and the way that they saw Christianity was different than my family saw Christianity, and that made me think about things a little differently as well. I think all of those things shaped me, and and helped me as I wrote. Uh, I will say this: I talked to a, a psychiatrist. And I asked him about the idea of memories. Because we're, we're imaginative people. 
it's easy for us to make up stuff and fill in gaps with what we think might probably be. The idea that some of those stories come across very crisp and clear in my book, Dust of a Distant Mesa. I asked him about that. He said, well, he said, we, he said I'm going to talk to you about something called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. He said, for some people with post-traumatic stress disorder, they block everything out. But for other people, every single second, every minute becomes extremely clear, and they carry that with them for a long, long time. He said, some people never get over it because it is so clear especially if they suffer injury or, uh, or something like that. He said especially soldiers and people that are in, uh, you know, first responders, people that are in very dangerous situations. He said sometimes it's just really hard to get over that because it is a very, very clear memory. He said, that, I think that's what happened with you. He said, I think uh, you suffered probably for many years with PTSD. Now, I, I would say I didn't see any evidence of that. I was actually having a pretty good time with my life. I, I've had a great life. I've worked hard. I've really enjoyed uh, meeting people from all different like, uh, walks of life and, and looking at different cultures and things like that. So uh, to hear the psychiatrist talk about it in that way, that might be an explanation of why things seem to be so clear after 50 years. Yeah, I wondered about that as I was reading, because those did seem like some of the incidents, well, some of them were just laugh out loud funny. (laughs) Some of them did seem awfully dark for a child, and I wondered how hard it was for you to go back and pick up the pieces and turn them over in your hand and look at them and to relive those moments, because clearly they were painful at the outset, and you were willing to do that again. Why? Very difficult. So why was I willing to do that? Not just a gift to your family. Yes. I, because I don't know that they could appreciate it. They, Like you said, you're very different from your family, and, and they wouldn't necessarily see those things. And some of them might even be embarrassed mm-hmm. about oh, yes. some of the incidents or the way that you felt them, the I've, way that I've you interpreted some, them. I've heard from some relatives. Now, my brother, one of my brothers uh, contacted me first before he hadn't read very far into the book, and he said, hey, you're throwing Dad under the bus. And I said, all I did was I wrote the book the way that I remember things. And so I'm asking you to also go back in your memory and see if if it doesn't track with mine when we get a little bit older and you can remember some of those things. Later, when he had finished the book, he called me back. He said, oh, yes. Yeah, you were dead on. Yeah, he said, now that I have read through the book and gone back and thought about some things, yes, you didn't throw Dad on. You were just explaining this is the way things were. I got that impression as I was reading it, that you weren't embellishing it. There was nothing to be gained by embellishing that. You were simply right. observing what was, and you were internalizing that and handling that as best you could as a, as a little child. And to your point, your brother at first was in denial about it in your conversation with him, saying, wow, you threw dead under the bus, which tells me he handled his PTSD the other way. It was easier to just bury it and move on which just adds to, I guess, the allure of that book for me, that you were willing to do the heavy lifting, do the work to go back, not just the writing work, which I know is huge, to do the emotional work of sifting back through that and pulling out the good stuff. There's the last treasures. few chapters were extremely difficult. They're, they're, they are the most emotional chapters in the book. And I, 
and I, there are, in, in a couple of chapters, I just had to stop because I, I just could not go on. I, I would write as much as I could and then just be overwhelmed with the emotions and I'd have to just walk off and kind of work up my courage and then the next day work on it a little bit more. So uh, it was not an easy write. I wanted it to be an excellent write. Um, you don't, and I, you don't get many chances to tell your story. So once you once you tell it, you want everybody to remember it and to remember it well. Well, I think it's compelling, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, so what's next for you? My literary agent has been contacting me on a regular basis saying, you need to write the next book. A lot of people who have read Dust of a Distant Mesa have contacted me or my literary agent and has said, what happened next? Well, well, Dust There's of a Distant... There's a beauty in that, though, too. A beauty in waiting and wondering. You know, so much of life is waiting and wondering. Well, Go ahead. that's right. So I, uh, Dust of a Distant Mesa ends in 1962. Or uh, 63, actually, in 1963. And I have hesitated about writing more, but what I have decided to do, the book that I'm working on now, is when I left home, I've already told you why I had to leave home, when I left home and what that was like, leaving, uh, having your parents say, you have to leave. That's just all there is to it. And... What happened uh, next? There was a number of things that occurred. Uh, it's very tied into a particular time and place, the early 1970s to the mid-70s. Those were just unusual times. Uh, actually, I think I go up to about 1980. I talk about meeting my wife. I talk about uh, the different kinds of jobs, the different kinds of people that I met. Uh, in my new book. And right now I'm just working through that, how to present that. I don't know if it's going to be as good a book as Dust of a Distant Mesa. I want it to be, but, but uh, it's really hard to, to say to yourself, I'm going to write the next great book. What you really end up doing a lot of times is writing to the very best of your ability and hoping that the stories are compelling that you present in the book. Well, when you've done something really excellent, it's hard to top it or even come near it. So you've set the bar pretty high for yourself. That's on you. <laughs> That's great. Um, well, as a result of our conversation today, what, w what would you like our listeners to see more clearly? A couple of things. One thing is that there is no such thing as the perfect family. There are a lot of people who come out of uh, maybe even highly dysfunctional families who I've met over the years who are impressive individuals. I think that what I'd like for people to know is that uh, your past, although it, it shapes you in some ways, does not define you. You can overcome 
uh, all of those things. I think I would also uh, like people to understand that it's not particularly a good thing to live in the past. It's really a good thing to live in the now, in the here and the now. This is, this is really what we have. Make every day count. Enjoy the, the, the days that you get. Uh, and, and spend your life uh, encouraging other people. Encourage people to, uh, to do extraordinary things with an ordinary life. I like, uh, I like meeting new people. I like having new experiences. I'm not afraid of the future. I'm, I'm a little worried about some things, but guess what? I can't affect those things. I, I simply have no influence over those things. So I have chosen to concentrate on the things that I can influence, the, the people I can and the, and the instances and circumstances that I can influence or, or change. That's what I'm going to work on. I'm going to work on, um, for the future, being, my, uh, being a uh, kind of a resource for my family. And I think I would encourage other people to do that as well. I would also say that, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, would my dad, if my dad had been able to read that book when I was a child, would he have been a different kind of person, a different kind of father, and those kinds of things, because that's the legacy that you leave. I doubt it. I, I, I doubt that my dad would change, knowing him. I think he thought he was doing the best he could do. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And so I would say, rather than concentrate so hard on what impressions are you going to make, you know, in the years ahead and things like that, now concentrate on being the best person that you can be right now. Uh, be, be the kind of person that, that other people respect, be the kind of person that, that is helpful, uh, kind, uh, caring uh, with other people, uh, also uh, maybe tolerant of people that are very different from you, I would say as well. Even though you may not agree with them or their lifestyle or whatever it is, it doesn't mean that you have to uh, hate them because they're different. And, uh, and it doesn't mean you have to agree with them either because they're different. It just means that you, you, would, you do not have to be aggressive about all of that. I think, I think that idea of, of leaving a legacy is really important. And so what is the legacy that you're going to leave? How will people remember you when you're gone? I was with uh, my grandfather Sims at a funeral one time. And uh, there were very, very few people there. But he was there, and I was with him. And we went forward to look into the casket, and he's looking at this, this body that somebody I didn't know. It was just a total stranger to me. My grandfather Sims turned to me, and he said, You know, people don't know that that man helped a lot of people. And I said, well, I don't see a lot of people here. And he said, well, that man 
helped with certain things in people's lives, and he said he didn't tell other people about it. He just didn't make a big thing out of it. So, um, so I think I think it's important for us to know that that we honestly, honestly, we do not get to control what we think people should think of us as our legacy. That that's going to be dependent upon those people who are. Uh, who survive us, honestly. Well, that's a beautiful flower that has grown out of some very rocky soil. So thank you so much, Dale, for sharing your story with us today. If people want to get a hold of your books, how can they find them? They're for sale uh, through Amazon. Uh, they were they were published by Illumify, uh, which is a Illumify Media, which is a uh, kind of a self-publishing company. Uh, that was a whole education by itself. How do you publish a book? <laughs> uh, and uh, it is a it is readily available. Uh, you can get a copy very quickly through Amazon through their Kindle. You can get a digital copy as well as a hold in your hand copy. And how can people get a hold of you if they want to congratulate you on the success of your uh, accomplishments of of your books or uh, contact you to continue the conversation? I think the best approach would be to use my email address uh, at the university. That's the one I see every after you know look at every day. So my email address at uh, Dallas Baptist University is dale at dbu dot edu. It's very simple, and uh, they can they can just in the subject line uh, mention the book or that they want to talk to me about that. And I'll be happy to do that. I'll be happy to talk to anybody about about the book. And I, I genuinely like meeting new people. I know that's, I know that about you. That's why it's kind of fun to be with you when we're in social gatherings. You meet the most interesting people. Well, thanks so much for your time today. I sure appreciate it. Best wishes to you. If you enjoyed our show today, please tell your friends, like, and subscribe so you'll receive future notifications when our next shows become available. Visit our website, nis.media, for show notes, bonus content, contact information for our special guests, and access to their products and ours. Or perhaps you'd like to leave a comment, a perspective on our show today, or share an eye-opening experience of your own. We'd love to hear from you. Again, that's nis.media. Special thanks to our technical director, Jim Wilson, music by Rebecca Salazar. I'm your host, Kit McCarty. I look forward to seeing you again soon.